This is Sunday Focus, a weekly public affairs program that looks at the topics affecting our society and the people who are making a change in the community each and every day. The people who have vision for the next generation. Sunday Focus presents new challenges for us, keeping you informed with topics of local and regional interest. Now the host of Sunday Focus, Christine Manica. Welcome back to another edition of Sunday Focus. We're being joined over the phone right now by a very special guest. Many people may know Sean Covell for his work in the Napoleon Dynamite film, but some people may not know that Sean is a South Dakota kid. Even though he was proud of his state, something bigger was calling him and eventually found his way through the Hollywood lights. And joining me over the phone right now is, is Sean himself. Hey, Sean, how are you? Hey, Christine, I'm doing well. How about you? Doing great. You were just telling me the weather out there is, is great right now in California. Is that right? Uh, I'm sorry to say that it is, it is actually great. Yes, it's actually great. But I split time in Deadwood and spend most of my time in Deadwood, so I'm not getting too used to this. Can't get cocky. No. You're going to get checked as soon as you get home. <laughs> With this weather nowadays in South Dakota, yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Well, Sean, thanks so much for joining us this morning. And before we get started, let's kind of go from the beginning. You you have an incredible story. So tell us about your life growing up here in South Dakota. So, uh, I mean, I grew up in a town of about 700 people, Edgemont, South Dakota, over West River. It's kind of at the corner of Nebraska and Wyoming. And yeah, and that's a small ranching, railroading town, and uh, I, I often say that I clawed for 18 years to get out of that town, but then I got out and clawed for the next 18 years to get back in. I truly didn't appreciate how amazing community was and, and how wonderful it is to be in such a tight-knit spot until I kind of struck out and found my way to California and lived in San Francisco and Los Angeles, and, and now I'm so lucky that I get to you know work in L.A. but live in, in Deadwood. Now, Sean, we, we did meet a little over a month ago now, I think, where you were a guest recently on the local late, late night show, Late Night Booming. And you have a funny little farm story that involved a girl, someone that you had a crush on. So obviously this made you want to become a farmer, right? <laughs> Christine, I have no farm stories because I am from West River. I have only <laughs> ranch stories. You see, yeah. An I have arrived moment is what I have. I have a number of I have arrived moments in my life. And every time I think I have arrived, something takes a crazy turn. And in this case, uh, this is about, about wanting to date the girl, like the girl, the girl who is the valedictorian of her class, the girl who is from a, a, a sheep ranching family. Her name is Lynn. And she's just beautiful and together and just amazing. And I, she was a senior. I was a freshman. She was the valedictorian of her class. I had a... 1.5 GPA. She was looking at all kinds of colleges. I was the bass player of a band called Screwdriver Lobotomy, <laughs> which was not particularly good, but was particularly loud. But I really wanted Lynn to be my girlfriend. That was a big idea. So I had put everything I had into getting her attention. And, and I think just by showing up, and eventually she realized she had no other options, uh, she, she became my girlfriend. But her dad Tom Porter, who had the multi-generational homestead uh, sheep ranch outside Edgemont, about 30 miles, and Tom was on to me. Tom was on to me. He knew what I was up to more than I knew what I was up to when I was 14 years old. But one day, Lynn came up and asked me, you know, she said, she said Dad wanted to know if, if you would help dock sheep with docking sheep this weekend. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> opportunity to get in good with Dad, absolutely. I don't know what docking sheep is. 
but I'll figure it out. It's going to be great. Let's do this thing. And, uh, Christine, I don't know if you know what Doc and Sheep is. Do you have much, uh, do you have much agricultural experience well, in your background? Well, uh, clearly, if I uh, didn't know the difference between a rancher and a farmer, but no, <laughs> no, I'd not. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> we all show our cards sometimes. Well, I was familiar with cattle branding. You know, it's an early spring activity, mm-hmm. and I figured it had to be something like that. It was nothing like that. It was a completely different. <laughs> so I get out there, and there's about 100 head of lamb over on one side of the pen, and on the other side is this, like, this weathered barn board table that was probably built when that thing was homesteaded. It's just great, and you could, like, you can feel the grain of that wood just by looking at it. And behind stands Lynn's dad, Tom, and next to him is his brother, Dick, and next to him is his brother, Billy Bob, Tom, Dick, and Billy Bob. We can get real West River yes. in this story for a second. <laughs> And they, they show me what to do. You, you pick up your lamb, you grab one leg here, one leg there, business toward the sky. And not long after, Tom had, you know, looked me in his eye. And, you know, the boy, the boy, boy lambs have boy parts. Those <laughs> have to go away. And they do it the old-fashioned way. So he produced a pocket knife. And with a quick swipe, pretty quick, he drops down and uses his teeth to grab what looks like your thumbs, pulls back, pulls them out, spits them in a bucket, looks back at me. And I am... You know, I'm in shock, and the lamb is in shock, and, like, the lamb has a much better reason to be in shock than I have to be in shock. I'm getting up. I kind of felt like we were travelers together on the exact same road, just at different points in the journey. I have this fundamental realization in that moment, which is it's not going to work out with Lynn. It just isn't. She's a super great girl, but this, no, this, this, this has gone far enough. We're just different people going different directions. And then, then I turn around, and there's, 99 more to go. So after a very long day, Tom takes off with the bucket, which he's taking off to fry him up for the testicle festival, which is a fundraiser for the fire department. And I have my second realization. I really needed to look into going to college. That 1.5 GPA I needed to turn around. I needed to focus up. It was, this was not, this wasn't going to be my life. It wasn't going to work out if I stayed in Edgemont. So I turned everything around and went off into the world. And that kind of put me on the path to being where I am. So you haven't looked at sheep the same way, have you? <laughs> <laughs> Only apologetically. When they serve lamb at a restaurant, which is disturbingly frequently, I'm like, no, no, I have done quite enough <laughs> there. I don't need to, no, I will be passing on that particular dish. Thank you so much. You know, after hearing that story again, I still get a kick out of it. And it only makes me think, is that one of your favorite memories in South Dakota? Or is there just something else that tops it? I don't know if the favorite is where I'd classify <laughs> that particular memory. Vivid. It definitely is <laughs> vivid. Uh, my favorite memory is in South Dakota. I mean, you know, I've had an opportunity now to live in some big cities. And I've made, made movies in a lot of places around the world. And, and my favorite memory of South Dakota is South Dakota. If it's riding my bike down to go fishing in downtown Edgemont when you've got your you know, fishing pole across your handlebars, but knowing that I could stop uh, on the way at the Igloo Bar, had a drive through window, and they always had ice water. So you could get a really cold glass of water, and Hazel was there to serve it to you. And Hazel was like, she's the best cook in town and worked mm-hmm. at both restaurants. So you'd call ahead to the restaurant to find out which one Hazel's at before you went down to get chicken fried steak. Cause if, it was, if it wasn't Hazel, it wasn't going to be the best. So, so think about my favorite memory is to think of this whole umbrella of experiences and then small vignettes start to kind of pop up in between that continue to this day like Christmas is with my family and I just haven't missed one yet those, those things are super special and I carry them with me and I hold them at the center of my identity 
Sean Covell, again, is on the phone with us. He's a South Dakota native, a film producer, and an author. Now, Sean, when did you know that you wanted to make movies? You know, did you ever make these mock-up scripts as a kid, or did you just like to write a lot? As a kid, imagination was certainly not an issue. I had plenty of it. Like, I kind of lived in a redhead with a bowl cut, little fat kid Walter Mitty world uh, early on. Just vivid imagination and playing with Star Wars action figures in the sandbox and those sorts of things had me making stories all the time. I think really drilling down to deciding I wanted to work in movies and create media, that didn't happen until high school when a confluence event occurred. One, one was I got a call-in radio show on KZMX, which is the only radio station you can get anywhere in like a 70-mile radius of Hot Springs where Edgemont is. And it was supposed to be just a you know, call-in, say the the menu for the day and if we have any games going on or whatever. But I kind of started to go on little mini rants and it became this like this Garrison Keillor style news from Lake Wobegon told from the perspective of a 14-year-old freshman in high school. And that kind of carried through high school. At the same time that was happening, I was discovering how terrible I am at sports. (laughs) Just bad. I, I went out for and failed publicly and painfully and everything that Edgemont offered. So when you're terrible at sport, you kind of end up finding a different direction. And for me, it was it was theater. And student council was an opportunity to just get up and do stand-up comedy in front of the, the school once a year to get elected at stuff. And and those things, yeah, they, they put me on the path to wanting to tell stories. Now, after college, Sean, you just didn't end up in Hollywood. You know, you had to work for it once it happened. So when you had that shiny degree in your hand, what did you do after? So, uh, yes, when I had my my sterling <laughs> degree in, in broadcasting <laughs> and uh, acting from the University of Nebraska, dot, 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 at Kearney, uh, I decided, yeah, I had to move to California. Move to California to make movies. Everybody knew that uh, that's where they were made. So I sold my car for the money to rent a U-Haul. I put a motorcycle on the mattress and I head off to... San Francisco, because I didn't know that they don't make movies in San Francisco. I thought just California <laughs> equals movies, and I didn't know that Los Angeles was 350 miles away from SF, and that's where everything was happening, and, and I didn't have any money to move down to L.A. <laughs> so basically what I did is exactly the same logic, and almost down to the mile, the same distance, as being like, you know what I want to do? I want to work at Mount Rushmore, and so I'm going to move to Sioux Falls. But I, I found myself in, in San Francisco and stuck. And honestly, Christine, it was such a culture shock. Mm. I would have freaked out and gone home, but I couldn't. I couldn't afford to. I was living in that U-Haul for about a week and a half until I found an apartment. The apartment wasn't an apartment. It was a room in an apartment with two roommates I'd never met and one friend who had moved at the same time I did. And that friend, we built a platform in the closet. So he lived in the closet of the bedroom I had a mattress on the floor and uh, had to kind of figure it out. And there I made incredible friends, and I got involved in the dot-com movement. I learned about becoming an executive recruiter, a headhunter, about working with venture capital firms to find ideas and then find the team to turn those ideas into reality. And and that idea of, of taking a concept and finding business infrastructure and bringing that concept to the world, that's at the center of what I wanted to do in making movies. And I had met amazing people, including the last family that ruled Iran until the Ayatollah showed up in 79. And they were multi-generational, um, deep wealth. And I, I hadn't seen the world from 
that perspective before, the quote unquote upper class perspective. And it really showed me a lot and helped me understand how to operate and said, okay, you need to do what you want to do. It's called producing and you have to move to LA, but it's very difficult to get into the industry. Mm -hmm. So if you can get into the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts, which is the finest film school in the world, and they have a master's program called the Peter Stark Producing Program where you can study film producing. So if you can get into that, that will provide a segue. So I started a company, opened an office in San Francisco and an office in Los Angeles and ran that for a year while I had applied to USC and I ended up getting in. And, and when I got my acceptance letter, it said, you will be joined by students from Harvard and Oxford and Vassar and Brown and Stanford and University of Nebraska, dot, 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 at Kearney. Like, <laughs> I had the most words of anybody on the acceptance letter. So, so that was the segue in. And I can tell you, at first, I was really nervous to talk about growing up in South Dakota. I felt like I kind of, and this is true in San Francisco, too, like I had to hide my background, hide my roots. Like, people mm. wouldn't understand. I'd be ostracized or something. But slowly, I realized that stories about sheep docking you know, my first pet being a chicken that you could train to sit on your shoulder, but you couldn't train it to not crap on you. Things like that, those stories about Hazel, the chicken fried steak cook, these, these stories were unique, and my perspective was unique. And there is no greater superpower in Hollywood than having a unique perspective. So slowly I realized, oh gosh, this, this thing, this is, this is special. And it's not only okay to share it, it's, it's a huge opportunity to and it was from that lens that I was able to recognize what I saw when I saw the short film that would eventually become Napoleon Dynamite. Who would have thought that your uniqueness that you were trying to hide ended up being shown in this iconic movie, Napoleon Dynamite, one of the most memorable movies of the 21st century. It really explored, in my opinion, a humor that wasn't really touched at Hollywood at that point. I rewatched it uh, about a month or so ago, and I got to say, it reminded me about the office humor before the office. You know what I mean? Like it was that dry mm-hmm. humor that you don't really notice right away until you follow along with the storyline and a light bulb goes off in your head. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it is a, a dry, different character-driven humor. And when we were trying to set the movie up in Hollywood, we were turned down by Fox Searchlight. We asked for a million-dollar budget, and they turned us down saying, this script was unreadable. It made no sense and was too weird. And this and a casting director, a very powerful casting director, was excited to work with us, but said, listen, this guy, he saw John Heater in the short film, like, I can't watch this guy for an hour and a half, but I've got a great relationship with Jake Gyllenhaal, and he's looking for an indie. So he was pushing us to cast Jake Gyllenhaal as Napoleon, which would be a very different, wow. a very broody, yeah, different thing, but we, we kind of had to stick to our guns and say, no, it's, this is different. We know it's different, but it's special, and, and, and hopefully other people will think it is too. And when I pitched the movie to the investor, I had to say, this movie is special and unique, and I'm probably going to lose all of your money. All of it <laughs> will be gone. Because if we don't get acquired at Sundance, we don't get a theatrical release. And so I had pitched the, that movie as part of a slate. Next up will be a horror film. Here are the economics of horror. Next up is a drama. Here are the economics of drama. One success will pay off a loss. But it turned out Napoleon was, was successful. Speaking about casting, Jake Gyllenhaal is Napoleon Dynamite, what they suggested. <laughs> casting for this movie, again, just from watching it, it probably wasn't easy just because the characters are so specific. So how did that process play out, Sean? Well, there's two types of casting that, that are happening in that movie. 
Uh, one would be the actors that we brought in from Los Angeles. Others would be the actors that we found locally in Preston, Idaho. I guess there's a third factor, too, which would be friends of the director, Jared Hess. And, uh, and between those three points, you kind of create the, the gallery that are the faces for the film. Like uh, Napoleon, played by John Hader, he's a, John's a friend of Jared's from undergrad at BYU, and my producing partner, Doc Wyatt, knew him at undergrad at BYU, as is Aaron Rule, who played Kip. However, when you look at, like, uh, Efren Ramirez, who plays Pedro, or John Grice, who plays Uncle Rico, they're Los Angeles-based actors. So we really only had a budget for a few. And it's kind of funny, one of the, the characters we planned on getting locally in Preston, Idaho, was the character of Summer, mm. the cheerleader. And uh, Haley Duff came in to audition for Deb, and she didn't even read. She just said, listen, look at me, I'm blonde, I'm, you know, after president, there's no way I'm going to be Deb. I really want to be in this movie, and I want to be Summer, and I will pay to fly myself out, and I will pay to put myself up, because I know that you're probably not casting that in Los Angeles. And we were like, what? So, so we did, and Haley was wonderful. Those actors who came out from L.A., they had to be ready for an experience, because, like, we couldn't afford a lot of very basic things. Efren Ramirez, we couldn't get him a, a rental car. His sledgehammer bike that, that was his bike that he <laughs> rode around when he wasn't shooting. That was his transportation, the city of Preston. So happy, especially with the locals that came out and contributed to the gallery of faces that, that really made the tone of that movie. Sean Covell, again, he is over the phone with us. Yeah, watching that movie, I actually forgot that Haley Duff was in it. I, I'm watching it, and I said, wait a minute, I know who she is. And my fiancé didn't believe me. I said, no, that that's Haley Duff, and he was proven wrong. So, uh, Sean, did you ever think that this movie today would not only be a, a huge hit, but still relevant 18 years later? On a daily basis, I am surprised by it truly, and honored to be part of something that's had that staying power. We were hoping that we would, we were hoping for a, a business life similar to the movie Clerks, and that would be just a, a festival acquisition, probably about $3 million in the box office, and then, yeah, you know, kind of a thing, kind of a cult classic that people might talk about here, there, and yonder. What actually happened is so much bigger and so much different than I ever imagined, and it's I mean, that movie's not a career-defining movie for me. That's a life-defining movie for me. And it's allowed me to do so many other things. And I'm, I'm so grateful every day. Now, I know sometimes people think, oh, you relate to Napoleon. But, but really, Sean, which character do you think in Napoleon Dynamite do you relate to, whether it was when you were filming it or even now watching the movie today? Well, I mean, my freshman year, I was six foot one. I wrestled the 130-pound weight class. I'm a redhead and had a perm with glasses <laughs> and braces. So there's a disturbing visual similarity between me and Napoleon, entirely accidental. But I think I've always related to kind of being the outsider. And, uh, and Napoleon, the thing that I love about that character, loved it on the script and love it now, is like, Napoleon doesn't change in the course of that movie. It's not a story about a kid who's insecure but finds his confidence and then becomes who he is. No, Napoleon's exactly the same person at the end that he is. And he's an outsider, but he doesn't care. Sean, not only have you produced Napoleon Dynamite, but you've also been a part of The Twelve Dolls of Christmas, Think Tank, Broken Hill, Cafe, Carter and June, Beneath Concrete, Blanche, just to name a few. Do you still have that same excitement whenever you're on a new movie set? experience of being on set is really special. 
And it's so great to see such talented people in so many departments that are all kind of driving toward one goal. That's a wonderful feeling. It's great. It's a summer camp-like experience. However, when you finish the movie, after you shoot it, you then pare down from 200 people to about 10. Then you go through a few months of post-production and finalizing the film. And then you get the process set up to get the movie distributed, and then you put it out in the world. And, and hopefully people like it, uh, and you hear about it here, there, and yonder. And, and that's cool. It's a wonderful experience to do it. But strangely, I became a children's book author. And I can mm. tell you that even though the economics are completely different, having a, just a book in your hand that you wrote, a physical thing that you're like, oh, wow, I, I, I did this. I did this, and I love this. That is, Christine, it's so satisfying. It is as satisfying as making a movie, if not more. And that's even before you get to, to read it with kiddos. I was just going to say, you're also a children's book author. The series that Sean's talking about is Porter the Hoarder. Now, I believe there are over 50 books in this series. And, and gosh, that, that's a lot of writing there, Sean. <laughs> well, they're short. You know, that's fine. <laughs> Illustration's the hard part. And I have a talented partner, fellow South Dakota and Rebecca Swift. She can handle the hard part. Yes, there are 64 books planned in the series. We've got seven of them complete. Two more are being illustrated. It's, you know, some job security. <laughs> yeah. What are some <laughs> of the stories that Porter the Hoarder shares to these kids that read the books? So when I learned about Porter, Rebecca has a daughter named Logan. And Logan is this super cool, clean, fastidious little girl. And her room is always pristine. And one day, Rebecca went into her room and she opened up the, the nightstand drawer. And in this perfectly clean, organized room, the nightstand had been packed with candy. It was Christmas candy jammed into Halloween candy with Easter candy. It was this moldy ball. And she's like, oh, my gosh, my daughter is a hoarder. And she got some felt. And she took white felt, created kind of the face and the body. And then she took black felt and created lines on the dress, black and white, and then yellow felt to do these pigtails design. And I saw that design, and I was like, what is that? And she's like, oh, this is, this is called Porter the Hoarder. And the second she said it, the, the voice of that character, snappy, quippy things the character could say popped into my head, and the structure of the books appeared. And what they are, they're like a book that's a game or a game that's a book. It's about a big reading with a little. And in book one, you clean Porter's room, and you help her find her collection of like 10 snotty handkerchiefs and six lightning-thread lizards and, and seven shiny rings and various things, and, and you decide whether or not she should keep those things. If she can keep it, she freaks out and is super happy. And if she can't keep it, she freaks out and she's super mad. And slowly her piles get worked down. And in the end of cleaning her room, she finds a gold coin worth three truckloads of candy that she then brings back and fills her room right back up to the top. So the structure of that translates to all different worlds. Book two, she's nature hiking. Then book three, she's making a pizza for her pappy's birthday party, but the last time she made a pizza, it was 200 feet tall and had tires and bullfrogs on it, so you have to help her find all the good stuff. Then she's trick-or-treating in the monster neighborhood for the Halloween book, and she goes to the hospital um, to get a little bit pinchy, feel-better shot, but she has to go through and find, like, bongo bedpans and all kinds of random stuff. So each book has its own world of its own weird. You actually have done a really cool community outreach program with this book, specifically with elementary kiddos. So why don't you tell us about that, Sean? In the Black Hills, I was uh, being interviewed for a project I created called The 12 Days of Pizza. And another person there at the interview was Jamie Tennis, who's the executive director of the United Way of the Black Hills. And she told me that the United Way's focus at that time was on early childhood wellness. And a couple of the pillars of that were early grade reading ability, turns out, 
only 32% of elementary school students in the United States, only 32% can read at grade level. And if you can't read at grade level by grade three, then it's hard to learn because you learn to read in kindergarten, first and second grade, but that you have to read to learn in third grade on. And that the devastating effect of not being able to read at grade level by third grade, it, it's so bad that they can correlate third grade reading abilities with prison capacity planning in that area. And I was like, what? And the other issue they were focused on was um, family engagement. Kids are on screens and parents are on screens and parents are busy. And so finding time to sit and connect and connect over reading was difficult. Now, I'd created the first book, the first quarter book, Rebecca and I had, and I was about to approach publishers, and I learned about that, and I said, what do you think about like, creating a thing where we do a quarter-to-quarter day, we get kids excited in the class, we have it read in the class, the group comes together to point out all the hidden stuff, and at the end, you know, the teacher asks, would you like your own quarter book? And then do an Oprah moment. Well, you get a book, and you get a book, and you get a book. <laughs> but then we assign parent homework that, that shows the parents how to read the book, but tell the kids, like, you are the expert in reading quarter. You have to read it tonight. Let's try it. So we did, and we tried it in about 20 schools. And the response was really, really, really great. So we started to expand. And this year, every first grader in the state of South Dakota got a quarter of the hoarded book. And we're excited to, to continue that process. And it's expanding to, to states in the region. Sean Covell, again, he is a film producer and an author. He's from right here in the state of South Dakota. Speaking about expanding the kids' minds, you're actually, right now, I believe you're you're teaching at the University of Southern California of Cinematic Arts. What is it like to teach to shape the young minds for the future of films and maybe even the future of writing, too? Yeah, yeah. I can say that uh, I just had my first class, second class is going to be this evening. It is terrifying. Every year that I have done it, it's so scary. These students are so accomplished. It's a master's level course. My TA, her family owns a thousand television stations in India. And her job before coming to USC was to license like American Idol, uh, America's Next Top Model, America's Got Talent, and repurpose those for Indian audience. So here, American Idol on a good night is going to get I don't know, 10 million viewers maybe. Mm-hmm. In India, it's more like 30 or 40 million. She's an incredible human being. I have a, a Navajo uh, student who's a Harvard grad and Fulbright scholar. I have these incredibly accomplished students, and it's so intimidating to walk in, but it, I have to remember what it was like to be there the first time and be like, nope, my perspective is unique, and it's not something I've seen before. And when I start to share that and get into the meat of the class, which is about independent filmmaking, it's really cool to see how everybody kind of gets excited and focuses up, and we've had great experiences, and I'm hoping this is a good class, too. So far, so good. There is a girl from Paris and another from Kenya. They have to watch Napoleon before they come, and I know those two students did not get that movie and probably hated it. So I like to make eye contact with the girl from Paris. You know, so what did you think? What did you think about the movie? Yeah. Yeah. Any advice that you would give to an inspiring film producer, maybe even an inspiring author, too? There's never been a better time in human history to create content. It's never been more accessible. It's never been less expensive. And what was cool about being on the show Late Night Boomin in Sioux Falls uh, with Jack and with Mitchell, they're just, they're just doing it. They're just creating because why not? And, and that's really a, a spirit that has always been around independent filmmaking and independent publishing. 
but now is a time where you can actually realize it and get something out there. So just keep making stuff. Any new projects for you coming up? Uh, let's see. It's all conversation until you're standing on set, we say, because it uh, can fall apart for any reason at any time. But there's actually <laughs> another, there's another children's book that uh, I've just cracked in my mind and uh, got the structure. It's going to be a choose-your-own-adventure looking find, and it's another partnership with our foundation partners in South Dakota. And I can't, uh, can't say too much about it. And that is a good tease right there, Sean. <laughs> To be continued there again, Sean Covell, film producer and author from right here in the state of South Dakota. Sean, if anybody wants to keep up with what you're doing, how can people search you? Do you have a website? Oh, you know, you can uh, find me on Instagram. It's usually where adventures are are happening. And uh, my website for the production company is redredmotionpictures.com. All right, Sean, thanks so much for giving us some of your time and joining us for a little bit. Thank you for having me. Hey, everybody in South Dakota, good, good to talk to East River. I'm Christine Manica, and you've been listening to Sunday Focus. I'd like to thank my guest, Sean Cavell, for joining the program today. Once again, if you want to know what Sean is up to and when he's wandering around the South Dakota Plains, always check out his Instagram page or his website. By the way, you can purchase the children's series, Port of the Hoarder, right now on Amazon. Join us again next week for another edition of Sunday Focus. Sunday Focus is a public affairs program of Results Radio, Town Square Media, Sioux Falls.